Terry Pratchett once humorously wrote in the Times newspaper in London, quote, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. People have commonly said over the years that the longer you live in this life, time seems to fly by. Maybe that's why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Life is short, isn't it? Just this week, I was on the phone with a young man in his late 20s. It may have an incurable and irreversible brain tumor. Many of us watched the news this week as we saw our nation's capital stampeded by people who lacked self-control, ending the life of several who woke up that day thinking it was going to be like any other day. Disease, cancer, and death show partiality to No one, even those in the prime of their youth. And even if you are given the privilege to live a long life, there may still be a lack of fulfillment or purpose in your heart at the end of your life. Stuck in a bed or chair, being haunted by vivid memories of a life full of regrets. Some people come to the end of their life, even a long one, wishing they would have never lived at all. That's because life can be elusive at times. Almost like trying to chase the wind or contain a cloud of smoke in your hands. That's one of the reasons why Solomon exhorts us to enjoy life while we still have it. And that's also why he instructs us, though, to live wisely And carefully, knowing that we will all be held accountable by God for the life we lived on the day of judgment. So whether you are 75 years old or you could still be someone's grandchild, are you happy with the way you are living your life? Is there anything in your life that you know right now that should immediately change? Let me ask an even deeper question to really each one of us this morning. If you could start your life over again, would you do it? If you could roll back the time, buckle up your Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church time machine, be lifted up from your garnet chairs, and find yourself in your diapers, Back in 19-whatever. Or for some of you young lads, 2000-whatever. Would you do it? 
second chances are rare in life. But under God's common grace to mankind, they do happen from time to time. A parent reunites with an estranged son or daughter after many years of being absent from their life. A business owner gives a former employee who he fired another chance to work for him again. A football coach or a professional athlete comes out of retirement to help a struggling team with their losing streak with the hopes of winning another championship. There's just something about getting second chances in life that brings us hope. A new start with new dreams. A wiser resolve with better outcomes. A new shot at something you failed at previously or something you just took for granted in years past. There's just something about going back in time, attempting to erase the bad choices we've made and get a redo that sounds really enticing. And there's also something quite alluring, even attractive to us, when we just stop and remember the good times, too. You know, those memories that make us smile, those images, those smells, and even those songs that makes us want to go back. As country singer Kenny Chesney once said, so I go back to a pew, preacher and a choir, sing about God, brimstone and fire, and the smell of Sunday chicken after church. And I go back to the loss of a real good friend in the 16 summers I shared with him. Now only the good die young stops me in my tracks. Every time I hear that song, I'll go back. I'll go back. Now, here's a confession from your pastor. I had one of those nostalgic opportunities just eight years ago. An entrepreneur in California had a business called Gridiron Alumni Football. Yes, that's grown men between 18 and 40, and there was one random 60-year-old dude. He didn't really do a whole lot strapping up the pads and experiencing the thrill of once we, something we once enjoyed, Friday night football. As cheesy and potentially ridiculous this might sound to many of you, it was a blast. We beat our former crosstown rival, well, their has-beens, 32 to 10. I was the winning quarterback. My wife got to see me in pads for the first and only time. But for a few hours, I got to go back. The marketing strategy of this entrepreneur created a slogan on his videos on YouTube. And it was printed all over the t-shirts. One more time. It was catchy. It got guys like me who think they have it to get out there and risk my life. Thankfully, I came out with no concussions, no torn ligaments, and my ego boosted for a week or two. One more time. One more time. If you're here this morning and you've ever contemplated what you would do differently with your life if you could begin it all over again, what is it that you would do? Who would you want to become rather than who you are today? 
What would you pursue as the good life? That is, if you think you're missing out on it right now. If you were stopped in the hallway at work or ran into an old friend and they asked you, what is the blessed life? What would you say? This morning we are in the middle of a five-week series in the Psalms. And today we find ourselves with the lead-off hitter of the Psalter in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 1. If you're using the chair Bibles provided in front of you, you should find that on page 254. Psalm 1. The book of Psalms, just to give you a little reminder, if you're new to the Psalter, it served as the God-inspired hymn book or song book for the people of Israel for many generations. And within these 150 Psalms, they contain a whole host of historical events, human emotions, and real-life experiences of those who trusted in God that many of us have come to love today. I'm sure Psalm 23 or Psalm 37 or others like it have been dear to you through the years. There are kingship psalms. There are psalms of confidence or trust in the Lord. Uh, There are psalms of confession and psalms of lament. There are psalms of thanksgiving and there are psalms of praise. Today, we begin with the first psalm of the Psalter, which actually serves as one of the wisdom psalms similar to that of the instructions you might read in the book of Proverbs, how to live in God's world by fearing the Lord in all that you do. Psalm chapter 1. This is the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you're taking notes, here is the main idea for our sermon passage this morning. God gives us One life to live, and there are only two ways to live it. God gives us one life to live, and there are only two ways to live it. Scripture tells us that we exist because God willed it to happen. That means that nothing exists in this life, including your existence, apart from him. That's John 1.3, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Colossians 1, verse 16. 
God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Acts 17, verse 25. In him we live and move and have our being. In fact, if God were to pull back his spirit, his very breath, we would immediately turn to dust. Job says in Job 34, 14 and 15. As Brother Tom prayed earlier, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit by God in our mother's womb. Even if a man or woman had sad regrets about becoming pregnant, according to God, there are no plan Bs in God's conception plan. Every child is a precious gift from God. He knits us in our mother's womb. He fashions and forms us according to his sovereign purposes. Truly, as Job says, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 12, verse 10. That means this. Life itself is a gift. A gift not to be wasted. A gift not to be thrown away. A gift not to be squandered but rather stewarded well. A life to be spent and enjoyed as God intended it. So that begs the question, what is the good life to be pursued? How would you characterize a life lived well? What truly is the blessed life? In Psalm 1, though we do not know the human author of this psalm, we certainly know who the divine author is. God, or Yahweh, paints the picture of only two ways you and I can live this life. Two types of people to become. Two different worldviews that have two different outcomes. And I would say very different outcomes. You could contrast the psalm in several ways. There is the righteous versus the wicked. The blessed versus the cursed. The one who delights in God's wisdom versus the one who delights in worldly wisdom. True success versus false hopes. A fruitful tree versus useless chaff. The congregation of the righteous and the condemnation of the wicked. And beloved, as we read closer together and look at Psalm 1 and begin to digest it together, ask yourself this question. Which of these lives am I living today? And if you discover that you are on the wrong path, Maybe today could be the very day you begin walking on the right one. Though we cannot go back in time, and we certainly can't erase our past, we can resolve the rest of our lives differently by God's grace, starting right now. If you're taking notes, the sermon will be broken up 
into two main headings with a few subpoints. Point number one, the desirable benefits of the blessed life. The desirable benefits of the blessed life. That's verses one to three. And number two, the dreaded consequences of the ungodly life. The dreaded consequences of the ungodly life. That's verses four to six. Let's look at it together again. Psalm 1 begins with a description, did you catch it? Of the blessed man. We read, blessed is the man. Uh, You could also simply say the man or woman who is blessed of God. This Hebrew word here in its context uh, speaks more generally to all mankind, uh, not simply human beings who are male. Uh, The word blessed here contains somewhat of a heavenly combo meal of good things that God bestows upon a person. In the context of the Psalms, as well as the broader context of Scripture, to be blessed is to have God's unmerited favor upon your life. To receive his covenantal love and mercy. For God to take ownership of you in a personal and intimate way. It speaks also of the unworthy sinner receiving all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places from our gracious God. Read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 to learn more about how blessed we really are in Christ. According to Jesus, to be blessed of God is to be a recipient of God's kingdom. You may recall Jesus' most famous or most well-known sermon in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, we read, starting in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This word blessed doesn't only mean a wonderful and right standing with God, but it also has the connotation of happiness. This is the experiential result of a sinner being loved and known by God. Indeed, it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, where God, through His Spirit, makes His home in our hearts. It's having Christ's joy, the risen Lord Jesus Christ's joy living in us. His joy, His love, and His peace abiding in us. John 14, 27. John 15, 11, Galatians 5, 22. 
Now, sometimes living in a fallen world where pain and suffering exist and where sin against God and when we sin against one another, we can grieve the Holy Spirit within us. Sinning should never make a godly person happy. It will break their heart. And it will, in some ways, impair that joy, that sweetness of fellowship with the Lord. Every true Christian in this room today knows exactly what I'm talking about. I sure know I do. When I've sinned against God or I've sinned against others or I've even tried to hide sin, it only makes me more miserable rather than joyful. In a couple of weeks, we'll be in Psalm 32, where David says the very same thing. When he hid his sin, his bones began to ache. But when he confessed his sin, God began to restore his joy again. And of course, from time to time, we all, every single one of us, are called to bear up a heavy and weighty trial that will test our faith. And this, too, can bring about a dampening storm of sorrow that floods our hearts. These are moments in the Christian life where living for Jesus can sometimes feel like two islands separated but with no bridge between the Christ we trust and the cross we carry. Life can feel like a disconnect from what we know to be true in our minds and what we are feeling in our hearts, at least in that very moment. We know that the godly are blessed. We know that true happiness comes from receiving God's grace towards us. But sometimes we don't always feel that way, do we? If you're someone who is seeking to trust the Lord today, but there just seems to be an absence of happiness from your life, I hope today the Lord would show you why trusting him can bring you joy that this world can't give you. My prayer is that a result of our time in Psalm 1, that you and I will be renewed again of what the blessed life is all about. Now, according to Psalm 1, who are the blessed? I've mentioned trust in God, but What else do we notice that characterizes or describes the blessed man or the blessed woman? Look again at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I want you to notice that the psalmist tells us that the blessed man is revealed by what he avoids and what he pursues, what he abstains from, what he flees from, but also what he enjoys and what he takes pleasure in. So what do we see that the blessed man avoids or abstains from? Well, he avoids the competing voices and vices in his life 
that could distract him from the voice of God. He avoids the competing voices and vices in his life that could distract him from the voice of God. Well, who are these competing or opposing voices? And to that end, what are the vices or evil that he should stay a million miles away from? Well, the psalmist gives three descriptions of these people. Uh, He first speaks about, you notice there in verse 1, the counsel of the wicked. Uh, The wicked's mentioned multiple times in Psalm 1. You notice there in verse 4a, the wicked are not so. Verse 5a, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Uh, Verse 6b, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked are the ungodly. They are people who do not know God who made them. And according to verse 6, God does not know them. At least not in any intimate or saving way. Uh, These are the unregenerate. These are those who are spiritually dead uh, with hearts that hate God. They really don't want him. Uh, They want to stick both fingers in their ears and ignore what he has to say. They seek counsel from themselves and man rather than seeking their counsel from God and his word. They are what marks the fool in the book of Proverbs. They are right in their own eyes, but do not take advice from the wise person. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's quite possible that the wicked spoken about here could even be religious people. Could be people who actually view themselves as A-OK with God. But you see, wickedness is not simply something like witchcraft, something overtly obvious and demonic. See, wickedness is not found out there with some kind of psychic or going to a drug-infested rock concert. That's not exactly an accurate picture of wickedness. Wickedness is really the outflow of self-deception. It's when someone sees themselves in a brighter light than what is actually true of their own heart. Their heart is bent on self Me, myself, and I, and not on God. Jesus said that wickedness is not found just somewhere out there, but it starts right here in the heart. Mark 7, verse 22. You might say, well, Brother Blake, is that just a good pastor's punchline that you're trying to make? Can you argue from the scriptures that wickedness is actually something that even religious people can have embedded in their heart? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in Luke 11, verse 39. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. These are people who knew the Torah. These are people who tithed more strictly and diligently than you and I could. 
And yet Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy and said, your heart is full of wickedness. The blessed man does not walk in the advice, the counsel, or the plans of the wicked. He then says the blessed man avoids the way of sinners. Sinners are also mentioned in verse 5 be nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Many of us know what sinners are. If you've been a child or you have children, you know you don't have to teach any child to be a sinner. It's, it's what we are. It's the rebellious condition we all are in when we enter this world. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 verse 23. But beloved, we are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Let me say that again if it went right over your head. We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's our very nature. It's who we are in our unregenerate state. We are like fish in water. We are soaking wet, but we don't know that we're wet. We love sin. We drink in sin. We swim in sin. We live in sin. Left to ourselves, we always seek sin, and we do not seek God. God's commandments, his law, his truth to the natural man's mind is loathsome. It's distasteful. It's a curse to him, and he wants to ignore it because it exposes his sin. But the psalmist here says that the blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. In other words, the blessed man marches to a different drumbeat than the whims of his godless culture. He's got different convictions. He's got different beliefs about God and sin. Different beliefs about marriage, sex, integrity, money, purity, parenting, and everything else in his life that matters to God. He's got a different outlook. He's got a different worldview. He's got different goals for his life than the lost sinners around him. You see, the blessed man does not share the same values, the same morals, the same attitude as the sinfully unrepentant people around him. The blessed man instead sees sin as poison for his soul, while the sinner sees sin as delightful as his next meal. Law sinners can heed their lust unrestrained like wild animals in the wilderness, but the blessed man fights resists and flees the sins that want to capture him when he's weak. He sees that enjoying God and believing God's best for him is far better than the temporal and fleeting pleasures of sin. Like stepping into wet concrete, and letting it harden over their feet, sinners harden their hearts 
against God. If God does not pull back the reins, the scriptures say sinners are deceived and they continue to deceive others. When it comes to following God, sinners choose the path of least resistance. But the blessed man chooses the path that leads to abundant life, whatever the cost. The blessed man does not stand in the path, the course of life, in the way of sinners. The last description he mentions of voices and vices that the blessed man avoids is the scoffer. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, some of your translations might say the scornful. A scoffer here means those who are proud and arrogant. In other words, they use their lips uh, to mock and to insult. And in the life of a Christian, scoffers will mock your faith. They say things like this God is dead. The Bible contradicts itself and is out of touch with reality. They laugh at the idea of Jesus being God in the flesh. They mock the whole idea of God through Christ coming back to establish a new heavens and a new earth. Peter wrote to believers in his day that were facing these types of insults from scoffers. He said in 2 Peter chapter 3, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? And forever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I remember in college knowing of a story that a young lady who was heavily intoxicated called up a young man who was a young Christian. She began to insult him, provoke him, all because he wouldn't date her. Because he knew that in dating, you need to pursue those who are Christian. And he stood firm on the truth instead of compromising with lust. He was mocked for his faith. He stood firm in God's word. Have you ever been mocked or insulted for your faith? If you have, you're blessed. You're blessed. You are experiencing in a real way what it means to be united with our Lord. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The blessed man does not compromise He does not get comfortable. He does not sit in the dwelling place with mockers. He does not cowardly bow down to the fear of man and hang out with such company. 
even if he's insulted for disfellowshipping with such proud and arrogant people, he does not give in to their rhetoric. He refuses to sit in the seat of scoffers. But beloved, scoffers are not found just in bars. Scoffers are not just found on the mission field. Scoffers can be found in churches too. They're dressed in the wool of a sheep, but inwardly they have the heart of a wolf. Martin Luther described these men in this way. They sit in the seat of pestilence, who fill the church with the opinions of philosophers, with the traditions of men, and with the counsels of their own brain, and oppress miserable consciences, setting aside all the while the word of God, by which alone the soul is fed, lives, and is preserved. Earlier in the service, Tom Chain read from 2 Timothy chapter 2. But keep reading. On to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul shares the same sentiment as we hear of the blessed man in Psalm 1, the types of people he, as a young pastor, must avoid. But these men he speaks about are not people just out roaming around in Ephesus. They are people roaming around in his church. These are wicked men who love sin more than they love Jesus. They are self-deceived and do not know God. In fact, they appear godly on the outside, but they lack the fruit of God's Spirit coming from within. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. CCBC, pray that each one of us would take seriously the call to watch over one another's life for our spiritual good. Remind each other regularly of the church covenant that we have committed to uphold as we remind ourselves that we help each other follow Jesus together. And pray, beloved, that our church will be made up of members who are truly Christ's sheep, who hear their shepherd's voice, and they follow him. And that's precisely what characterizes the blessed man in Psalm 1. It's not only who he avoids and what he abstains from, it's also what he delights in. It's also what brings him deep satisfaction. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you delight in God's word? Do you treasure it? 
Do you make it a priority somewhere in your week to linger over the Scriptures? 30 minutes? Three hours? None at all? Do you look to the Scriptures for encouragement, for hope, for the power to resist sin in your life? Do you open the Bible to seek God's wisdom as you're considering who to marry, what job to take, or what church you should belong to? And if you are, if any of those things are true in any measure in your life, to some degree, you are blessed. Heaven shouts over the loudspeakers, you are blessed according to God. You see, the blessed man, the blessed woman, cares less about the competing voices from the world, from the media, from even unregenerate but respectful friends, and instead listens to the voice of God who satisfies him. You see, the law of the Lord is the precepts, it's the instructions, it's the menu of God's word that is the daily bread for true believers. Job said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. The prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy. And the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Our Lord Jesus Christ stood toe-to-toe with the king of darkness himself. And what did Jesus say to refute his temptations? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to notice, it doesn't say that the blessed man simply hears the Word of God. It doesn't simply say he reads the Word of God, though that's certainly implied. It says that he meditates on it day and night. What exactly does it mean to meditate on God's law? Well, in Hebrew, there are two words commonly used for meditate, They can have a wide range of meaning. Uh, This word here in the Hebrew is hagah, which means to utter in a low sound. Uh, The picture here is of an animal, like a lion that is brooding or growling over its prey. Uh, For us, that might be the grumbling of your tummy. You ever had time sitting in church and you're starting to kind of doze off, but you hear someone's stomach growl, and then you get hungry, and you're telling them, man, I wonder what they're going to have for lunch too. The idea is that the one who meditates on God's word is their souls are grumbling. They're hungry. So much that their whole mind is preoccupied with the word of God. It's affecting their demeanor. It's affecting their words. It's affecting their whole day. That's why the psalmist says he does this day and night. Author David Saxton says that biblical meditation is a careful pondering 
and chewing over matters of the soul. You ever had just an amazing meal that you did not want to scarf down like fast food in your car, but you just kept chewing on the same piece of fat off the steak for like five to six minutes? That's what it's like to chew on God's word. Just want to linger. Want to taste every juice that comes out for what God has for me in that moment. Meditation on God's word is is what Joshua was instructed to do as he led the people of Israel into the promised land. Joshua 1 verse 8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You're saying, well, Brother Blake, you don't even know my life. I mean, how exactly do I meditate? I mean, I get yoga mats, and I get singing in the shower, but exactly how do I do it? Well, here's what I've done in my life as an example for the last 15 years. I start the first 30 minutes of my day by thinking of one spiritual truth. And then I end my day, the last 30 minutes of the day, thinking about either that same spiritual truth or another one. So beloved, start your day. Whatever your kind of normal routine is, whether it's the first 10 minutes or the first hour, or whatever you got to do, start your day in your Bibles or a sound devotional book, and then in your day, reading and or listening to something spiritually edifying. As one old theologian once said, I have no rest, but in a book with the book. Another suggestion would be, parents, take the songs that we're singing on Sundays. Look them up on YouTube, or you can ask Julie O'Brien, who oversees our social media. She could probably send you the link, or, or Drew as well. Begin to sing the songs in the car together, and then talk about the theology behind the songs with your kids. Or after the sermon today, or any Sunday for that matter, Discuss at least one thing you are learning with another believer and let that drive the conversation at lunch. My favorite Puritan writer, so if you ever want to buy me a book and you're like, I don't know what Pastor Blake would like, if you're going to just take a stab at it and you go to the Puritans, Thomas Watson. I mean, you got Spurgeon over here, but T. Watt, he's my boy. Thomas Watson once reproved some lazy Christians that were complaining about not getting anything from their pastor's sermon at church. Listen to what he says. It is better to meditate on one sermon than to hear five sermons. Many complain that they do not profit from sermons. This may be the chief reason, because they do not chew the cud. They do not meditate on what they have heard. CCBC? We should gather each Lord's Day as a church with our stomachs grumbling to be fed the word of God. We should make it a prayer that each one of us, when we come together in this place, would have our mental stomachs stuffed with the food of God's word. If you're wanting to learn more about how to meditate on God's word better, I have three books that I would recommend to you. God's Battle Plan for the Mind by David Saxton. 
I'll be standing at the door if you want to get these titles. Another one is Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. I recommend this. This is my go-to. This is like my scrambled eggs for anyone who's trying to ask about spiritual meditation. Donald Whitney's book is really good on that. And then Habits of Grace, a newer book by David Mathis, Habits of Grace. If you want to learn better about how to cultivate biblical meditation, those are some good resources. You see, the blessed man who avoids voices and vices that could distract him instead listens to the voice of his good shepherd. He fills his mind with God's truth. His heart is filled with God's pleasures to the point God's wisdom is more precious to him than gold or silver and sweeter than honey. What are the desirable benefits of the blessed life? The benefits of the blessed life, God's joy becomes your joy. It's verse 2. And God's power in you fulfills God's beautiful purposes through you. That's verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The psalmist now gives us a picture, an image, like a good pastor would give you an image or an illustration. And he describes the blessed man like a vibrant and fruitful tree that is rooted next to an abundant supply of water. Brothers and sisters, I have already come across several of you walking into the church building this morning. I can even see it on your faces this morning that some of you have had a tired and weary and hard week. Some of you have texted me prayer requests because you're struggling with fill in the blank. Brothers and sisters, if you would have seen my own life this week, you would find that I am all too much just like you more than you realize. Brothers and sisters, we are not living in a Disneyland. We are not in heaven yet. We live in a spiritual desert as we are marching through the enemy's land and going to that celestial city. Turn on the TV. We see chaos and confusion. Scroll through your social media apps on your smartphone or even just through any recent blog post. We see drama, deceit, and hateful speech. Uh, visit some so-called gospel preaching churches in our own country. And we see the same thing. Division, backbiting, and sadly, a famine of the word of God. Look back even this week in your own living room or the dinner table. I'm sure we've all witnessed at some point tears, anger, yelling, or cold silence between people that mean the world to us. Friends, apart from God showing any measure of grace and kindness to us, we are like what Gunnar read earlier in Jeremiah 17. We are like a shrub in the desert, and we won't see any good come. We will dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So, beloved, how do we survive in a world like this? In a world saturated and soaked in the filth of wickedness, sin, and scoffing? Can any true Christian make it? 
How can someone living in this type of environment be described as a vibrant tree, bearing fruit with leaves that do not wither and prosper spiritually through any season of life? The answer lies in one word. The psalmist says that the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. The word planted here in the original Hebrew actually means transplanted, which means the tree spoken about here in Psalm 1 was uprooted from a dry place and replanted in a new place with deeper roots that has richer soil, placed firmly by a supply of water that does not cease. In other words, the tree did not go and find the water, but someone uprooted the tree and led it to the water. Brothers and sisters, godliness and living the blessed life always begins in the heart, and only God can give you that new heart. Only God can uproot us out of the bondage of sin and transplant us by the fountain of living waters. Psalm 1-3 is describing the blessed man as the one whom God has given a new heart, one who has been given a new delight, one God has given a new path to walk in. Beloved, this is describing everyone who has been given the new birth and received Christ by faith. Jesus said in John 15, verses 1 and 2, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. How do you abide in the vine? By first clinging to the one who died for sinners on a tree, Jesus Christ. Christ prayed to his heavenly Father and did not seek the counsel of the wicked. Christ walked the narrow way perfectly and never stood on the broad way with sinners. Christ went to the cross, despising the shame, bearing the reproach of evil men who scoffed at him who arrogantly mocked him as if he were out of his mind. Beloved, Christ was mocked all the way up to his final breath by one of the criminals that hung next to him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But Christ did not stay dead on that tree. Christ rose from the dead. Though his blood was spilled on that tree, when Jesus rose, he demonstrated he succeeded in his mission. He did not fail in his mission. He fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah said would happen. Isaiah 53 
verses 10 and 11, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. My dear non-Christian friend that might be here today, maybe a parent brought you, you don't believe this stuff, but you know you've been living life long enough that this world is a spiritually dry place. You're searching, you're seeking, but it's leaving you empty. Do you want your soul to be satisfied? Do you want to know why you exist on this planet to begin with? There is living water that you can drink from. Turn from your sin and rely solely upon Christ. He will give you his Holy Spirit. He will transplant you into a new home with new desires and a new fellowship. And he will make you a new creature. You see, fruit bearing, as the psalmist describes, is a work of God Almighty. He alone produces this beautiful work in us. Listen, Christian, you might be in a very hard situation today. You feel pain. You feel weak. You feel sad. Maybe you're left wondering if God has abandoned you. Wondering if he transplanted you and forgot to put your roots next to that water. Listen, if you're trusting in Christ today, you're one of his sheep. He knows exactly where you're at, and he's going to lead you in his own time and in his own way to green pastures and still waters. Listen, even if the pruning shears of our Heavenly Father are hurting right now, it's going to later yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness that you most want. I like how Spurgeon puts it, the Lord's trees are evergreens. No winter's cold can destroy their verdure. In verses 1 to 3, we've learned about what the blessed life is all about and the desirable benefits of the blessed life. But what is the alternative? Is there an option B? Is there another way to live the life other than the blessed life? Which is point number two, the dreaded consequences of the ungodly life. In verses 4 to 6, he says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This point is unusually shorter, not because only the length of the sermon, but because the dreaded consequences of living any other life is ominous. The wicked, verse 4, are those who do not know God. They will never experience the desirable benefits of the blessed life. They will never experience God's inexpressible joy. The best the wicked will ever experience are temporary 
splashes of happiness that easily go away with the storms of life. Their greatest achievements in this life may be enjoyed here, but they will not endure the judgment of God to come. That's why they are likened to chaff that the wind drives away. Their life on earth and all they did will be swept away in a moment when they give an account for their life before God. Not only will they never experience God's joy, which is a perfect joy, but they will be excluded from the fellowship and sweet community of God's people. That's why he says in verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see, on earth, the wicked may have the upper hand on God's children from time to time. They may even hide among Christ's sheep in Christ's church, thinking they will never be found out. But in heaven, God's children will be exalted with Christ, while unrepentant sinners will be humbled to the depths of hell. They will, verse 6 says, perish. Friends, we can search high and low all throughout our lives for purpose, happiness, stability, pleasure, and peace in a whole lot of places. We can long to go back in the past, try to erase our bad decisions, try to get a redo, look and hope for a second chance. But I think reality has taught all of us this past year that you can't guarantee tomorrow. The only thing you and I have promised is today. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows what every sheep that belongs to him is going through. Verse 6, he knows the way of the righteous. Beloved, whatever God ordains in your life is right. It is good. It is painful in the moment at times, but it's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. Even when the storms are coming, the roots of your faith will grow deeper in him. The river of those flowing waters that the Bible likens to the filling of the Holy Spirit will only dominate our hearts when the storms of life begin to crash down. He knows the way of the righteous. He knows your way, Mark. He knows your way, Brad and Julie. He knows your way, Gunner and Robin. He knows your way, Stan and Mindy. He knows you by name. He's marked out your path, and he's with you all your days. In this one life we are given by God, there are only two ways to live it. Which one are you living? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use the teaching of your word to give those who have weariness in their hearts new hope today. Father, we know that for those who trust in Christ, we are blessed. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Lord, I do pray that we would take seriously where our joy comes from and how we can cultivate that joy through meditating on your word day and night. Father, I pray that Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church will be a place where our souls are grumbling to be fed every week. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.